The problem that we have right now is that Putin feels very much at risk himself personally. He sees that the enterprise that he engaged on the invasion of Ukraine to bring Ukraine back into Russia's fold to push back NATO is not going particularly well. And he now is basically fighting for Russia's position in Europe and in the world. And he's often said repeatedly, a world without Russia is not a world that he wants to see. So we're in a very different and, and very dangerous place from where we were, let's say, three weeks ago, when a lot of this was pretty hyper and where people were still trying to figure out what was Putin going to do and what was his endgame. Because his endgame is now self-preservation as much as subjugation of Ukraine. Welcome to the News Not Noise podcast. I'm Jessica Yellen. I want to begin with a warning. During a portion of this interview, we discuss the use of nuclear weapons. It is serious, upsetting stuff. If you want to skip ahead when you hear me ask that question, we move on to less apocalyptic topics after that. My guest today, Fiona Hill, is one of the world's top experts on Vladimir Putin. She's been to the Kremlin. She sat across the table from Putin. Yes, at one of those absurdly long tables. She's advised presidents of both parties on how to deal with Russia's increasingly autocratic leader. Here, Hill shares her insight into who Vladimir Putin is, what he's capable of doing, whether he's gone mad, and how the U.S. and allies can end the brutal war he's waging against Ukraine. I hope this conversation gives you more insight into what's at stake in Russia, Ukraine, and beyond. Fiona, thank you so much for being here and for your time today. Oh, it's great, Jessica. Thanks for having me. So the question I get asked more than any other right now is why is Putin doing this and why now? We've heard it's about stopping NATO expansion. We've heard that it's about trying to restore the USSR. But you have said that he's interested in restoring something called the Russian Imperium. What is that and why now? The Russian Imperium, it's just a term that I'm using, honestly, um, all of the lands that were once covered by the Russian empire at some point. Putin is a kind of an amateur historian. And you know, what I fear is that uh, during the period of isolation that he's had during COVID. I mean, it's been so extreme. We've all seen these pictures that have been turned into memes of him meeting with world leaders in his own cabinet at the ends of just infeasibly long tables in all kinds of, you know, weird rooms in the Kremlin. And the Kremlin's got incredible archives as well of historical maps and, you know, different books about Russia at different points. And Putin's always invoking all of these kinds of ideas in his various speeches. So it's not that he's talking just about the expansion of NATO in modern times and that threat that that poses to Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. But he keeps taking us on his trips down historical backways into the annals of, you know, ancient Muscovy and Kremlin maps and history books that he's obviously poured over, talking about lands and people that rightfully belong to Russia. And he's had several essays about Ukraine that have really made it very clear that he has a mental map of the world that covers a lot of these lands that were once part at different periods in history of the Russian Empire. It is devastating, certainly, what's happening to the Ukrainian people. And we are always thinking of the humanitarian crisis and the tragedy for Ukraine. Beyond Ukraine, what is at stake if Putin succeeds there? Putin's been convinced for years that we've been out to get him. And he looks at US interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and elsewhere, for example, and draws the conclusion that the United States is always in the process of regime change. Some of these escapades, in his view, these are escapades have been backed up by NATO. And now that there's all this sort of talk about in reaction to what's happened about Ukraine, about regime change in Russia, this makes him all the more adamant that he's going to, you know, basically subjugate Ukraine 
push the war to the bitter end and try to get Europeans and the United States to the negotiating table to negotiate guarantees. So the problem that we have right now is that Putin feels very much at risk himself personally. He sees that the enterprise that he engaged on the invasion of Ukraine to bring Ukraine back into Russia's fold to push back NATO is not going particularly well. And he now is basically fighting for Russia's position in Europe and in the world. And he's often said repeatedly, a world without Russia is not a world that he wants to see. So we're in a very different and a very dangerous place from where we were, let's say, three weeks ago, when a lot of this was pretty hypothetical and where people were still trying to figure out what was Putin going to do and what was his endgame. Because his endgame is now self-preservation as much as subjugation of Ukraine. So given what you've just said, have Putin's military objectives changed? I mean, we understood that going into Ukraine, were he successful there, there was this assumption he could roll into Moldova and other former Soviet satellite states or republics and try to capture more territory. Do you still think that could be the case or has his calculus changed? I don't think his objectives have really changed. His intention was to take Ukraine by whatever means he felt was necessary. What he really wanted in the case of Ukraine was to have a government that was subservient to Moscow, a full ironclad 100% and more guarantee that Ukraine would not be in NATO and some kind of treaty encompassing that guaranteed by the United States and others. That was also clear. He wanted all kinds of assurances on NATO, NATO enlargement and the role of the United States inside of Ukraine. But he wanted a Ukraine that was neutralized in some fashion. Now, full invasion is one way of going about that. But when it came to other former Soviet states, as you've mentioned, like Moldova and, you know, well, Belarus is actually already now fully under uh, Russian control and occupation. Now that's out the window. In other former Soviet republics as well, we've seen uh, various forms of Russian intervention that fall far short of an invasion, but that have brought back those leaderships fully into Russia's political orbit, security orbit, and made it very difficult for them to have any kind of autonomous policy. And clearly in Moldova, now there's a great deal of anxiety, however, that Russia might go even further. There's now a great fear that Moldova's next in line, as you're suggesting here. And then, of course, uh, Poland, the Baltic states are extraordinarily worried because if Belarus is being absorbed into Russia and is being used as a platform for launching this invasion into Ukraine, which it is. Belarus borders onto Lithuania and onto Poland uh, directly, also to Latvia. And there's a real fear now that they're going to be in the firing line. Of course, this is where all the refugees are going to Poland. There's a lot of talk about Poland sending in weapons, including fighter planes into Ukraine to assist with the war efforts. The Baltic states are rising up in support of uh, Ukraine as well. And so one can easily see here an escalatory dynamic in which other countries get pulled into the war zone, even though many of them have already been pulled in in the form the Soviet republics into Russia's political, economic and security sphere. This is a highly fluid situation here. So I'm afraid that all kinds of things could happen. You mentioned earlier that Putin's been isolated during COVID. And we hear that a lot. But you know, it registers that we've all been isolated. Why is that meaningful for Putin? And what should we make of the fact that he's sitting at these epically large tables? I understand that's not just about fear of COVID. Is he also paranoid about assassination? Yes, I think that's probably, you know, part of the case. But he's a notorious germaphobe. And we know that he's been, for example, pushing for people who have not been you know, fully vetted to basically confine themselves into quarantine for up to two weeks before they go to meet with him, television crews, you know, for example. But then there's also performance that's been involved. It's not just about isolation. It's a kind of a display of power, right? No one is worthy of sitting at the same end of the table. You know, I think that when we saw President Macron, for example, sitting at the end of the table, I think Putin was trying to signal very effectively, obviously, his distance from Macron. He was kind of entertaining him, but a distance and, you know, not particularly listening 
listening to him. Of course, from the outside, that looks pretty absurd. And, you know, we're all quite rightly looking at this and saying, really? I mean, you know, what are you worried about here? But obviously, assassination may be something that he's constantly worried about. But the isolation is a real thing. And we're hearing more and more that he's only been entertaining a very small group of the hardened security people around him, listening to them and obviously giving an awful lot of orders, but not really processing, it seems, a lot of alternative information and advice. So he's in a bubble. Very much so. A lot of analysts are speculating about Putin's mental state. Macron said that he seemed different in some ways. Some people are saying he's gone mad. Do you buy the view that he's mentally unstable? And if not, what should we understand about how much suffering he's willing to inflict on Russia or the world to realize his vision? Well, first of all, Putin is always very calculated. And there is, of course, the madman theory that, you know, we know that President Nixon and Henry Kissinger always ascribe to that Nixon was, you know, calculatedly unpredictable. And, you know, Kissinger would always warn darkly of, you know, things that Nixon might be capable of doing as a way of intimidating opponents, but, um, you know, also in the international arena, keeping people slightly on edge. And Putin's made a whole platform out of this over the years, the 22 years that he's been in power, always trying to be the unpredictable and ruthless individual. But there's also something, you know, to the fact that he does seem to have changed somewhat hardened, become more paranoid and more suspicious of the time of COVID. Look, we've seen in our own societies the unleashing of all kinds of things that perhaps had been contained prior to this, thresholds that have been crossed. I mean, we're not all invading our neighbors' gardens and, you know, trying to chop down their trees or set the houses on fire, although maybe some people have gone contemplated that during COVID, being stuck at home all of the time. He does seem more emotional and there's a sort of a visceral nature to the way that he talks about things. But there's a long tail to many of the things that Putin is saying and doing right now. And lest we underestimate his ruthlessness, let me just remind people just very quickly of some of the things that Putin has presided over during his tenure. They've poisoned Alexander Litvinenko in London with polonium, clearly on Putin's authorization, turning Alexander Litvinenko into a human dirty bomb and uh, spreading polonium all over London used a weapons-grade banned nerve agent on Sergei Skripal and his daughter Yulia in the town of Salisbury in England, which ended up killing, because of the way that the hit squad basically got rid of the Novichok in a perfume bottle, ended up killing a British woman, Dawn Sturgis, who found that perfume bottle. They've also rubbed Novichok onto the underpants of the main, I mean, that sounds absurd when you say it, but under the main opponent of Putin, Alexei Navalny, who, after surviving that assassination attempt, is now in a penal colony outside of Moscow. There's been a massive clampdown and repression of all kinds of opposition. And this is all before we've got to this war in Ukraine which has also been preceded by the annexation of Crimea, a war in the Donbass, and the shooting down of MH17, the Malaysian Airlines, which the Russian government refused to take any responsibility for, even though the missile was a Russian-made missile that was put into the hands of their proxy forces there. So, I mean, I could go on, but I shouldn't, you know, because we'll take up the whole time doing anything of this. But lest people think that Putin doesn't mean business, there's an incredible ruthlessness. And so when people were basically saying, oh, he wouldn't go for a full-scale invasion of um, Ukraine, one could hope that he wouldn't, that he would make a different decision. But there was every possibility that he would. You've also said, and I should preface this by saying this is not a fun question to ask about, and this is very upsetting, but Putin has declared a nuclear alert, putting Russia's arsenal at what he called special combat readiness. You've said you think he would be willing to use nukes. So, you know, we've got a whole nuclear universe, let's just say, out there for Vladimir Putin right now. And he is very deliberately 
as you've said, put the nuclear option on the table, clearly to scare us and for us to think about this. And the thing with Putin is, if he has an instrument, he always wants to consider how he would use it and in what eventuality. So we have to take it very seriously, the fact that he's contemplating using something. And look, he's using them for effect in a rhetorical sense already by putting them on alert. This is showing incredible weakness, paranoia and fear on the part of Putin. It's meant to be, you know, warning us off about thinking about all kinds of interventions. And you know, he's making a rather large arena of interventions here. He's talking about economic war, any kind of troops going in, no flight zones being imposed in uh, Ukraine. He's making intervention and interference a kind of rather broad category and saying, remember, I've got nuclear weapons. And you can be sure that he is thinking about and talking about with the people around him about, is there some way he could use something for demonstration effect? Now we have to act very calmly in response to this. I think that the administration has done exactly the right thing, not reciprocating on the alert. I think he was hoping we would, because then that changes the nature of this conflict immediately, of course. He's also accusing Ukrainians of seeking themselves a nuclear weapon, because he wants then the nuclear powers to immediately get into action, start negotiating over the head of the Ukrainians and negotiate Ukraine away, and to get us into the, you know, the old-style Cold War set-offs, where we immediately rush to the table you know, to try to give concessions in the hope that we'll head something off. But we absolutely have to engage with the Russians behind the scene and get other nuclear powers to do the same. I mean, it is unacceptable in the current context when you have, you know, Ukrainians basically trying to fight back with Molotov cocktails to be basically going immediately on nuclear alert. And we should also be working with other nuclear powers, including the P5, the permanent uh, grouping, which of course includes uh, Russia and the United States at the United Nations Security Council, China, the UK and France, but other nuclear powers to be able to push back on this behind the scenes. The way that Russia is having loose talk about use of nuclear weapons is basically signaling to countries that if you're in a pinch and when push comes to shove, you need to threaten using nukes or even, you know, potentially use one for demonstration to get what you want. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Do you think this could end with Putin still in power? There is a diplomatic way out. There is a diplomatic way out, but it's not going to be particularly pleasant and easy to negotiate. And frankly, you know, kind of one of the initial stages of this does have to leave Putin in power. Because if there's any sense on Putin's part that he's not going to be in power at the end of it, and that is he is in physical risk, then there's no way that he is going to even negotiate. He has to be able to show himself a win. He's supposed to get himself up for re-election again in 2024. If all is lost and, you know, Russia is brought to its knees, economically, politically, and in military terms, you know, that is the end of, you know, Vladimir Putin's presidency as we know it. He comes out of this as a loser. So in the initial stages of whatever we're going to do here, we have to be able to show a pathway that doesn't end with his overthrowing. Putin, basically, after the shooting of Gaddafi in Libya, apparently watched that video over and over and over again of Gaddafi being, you know, seized by rebel forces and shot in what was essentially a drainage, a ditch or a, you know, a kind of drainage pipe. He saw Hosni Mubarak of Egypt being overthrown and ending up in jail and then, you know, basically dying you know, of, a, of a heart problem. You know, he's already fixated on Ceausescu being shot or Mussolini hung or Hitler in a bunker. He knows all of this history. The idea that something like that could happen to him and the people around him, you can be damn sure, will focus his mind on taking this 
as far as he absolutely needs to, to make sure that fate is not his, that that does not come to pass. Putin badly misjudged Ukrainian resistance. Are you surprised by how unprepared his troops are? And is this in any way because he's not getting accurate information? Does he buy his own propaganda? I think he definitely buys his own propaganda. And, you know, kind of then it's this limited information that's coming to him because he was looking at everything from the top down. I think what Putin doesn't understand is the horizontal networked world outside of the vertical of power that he sits in within the Kremlin. So Putin operates in a system in which he's at the very top of it, and then there's a very small group, and then there's pretty much everybody else. And uh, yes, information filters up through his intelligence agencies, but it's a very narrow funnel. And you know, after 22 years in power, it's pretty unchecked power. We've seen you know some of the risks ourselves of kill the messenger if they bring you a message that you don't like. Just imagine people trying to give Putin contrary information. He's deeply suspicious. He obviously doesn't believe information that's out there on Western news outlets because this is all propaganda. And he doesn't understand how much societies have changed inside of Russia, for example, and also inside of Ukraine itself. I mean, he seems to have had a vision of the Ukrainian government as being, as, as he says, drug-addled neo-Nazi fascists. And he believes that. And he seems to believe this. Maybe he actually believes that genuinely that Zelensky is a former comedian, takes cocaine, and that, you know, kind of is maybe, you know, kind of pump it up all the time. Who knows what people are actually telling him? And so then there's also, as you said before, complete underestimation of the spirit and the capabilities of Ukrainian people. And also about how they identify themselves. Language isn't sufficient of an identifying element. You know, we all speak English, but we're not English. You know, kind of people within the United States don't want to go back to living under the British Empire. This is again as if we invaded Canada because they speak um, English and, you know, we decide we don't like the way the Canadians were living. Or if the United Kingdom went and invaded Ireland and decided to take it all back because they couldn't deal with all of the, you know, the troubles in Northern Ireland and just thought it was much better to take the whole thing back again. None of this would be very popular. There would be a massive reaction. So I think that's part why the Russian military was unprepared because they thought that they would be in and out. There seems to be a leaking. I, again, we don't know whether half the things are true but most of the times because of the propaganda realm in which everything is being operated. But there seems to have been a speech prepared for Putin somewhere for February 26, which we've long um, ago blasted past, in which he's giving his pronouncement on, you know, why he took back Ukraine. So the preparation was clearly for something that was going to happen much more quickly. What Putin is now trying to do is get a different grip. Putin, you know, obviously plays chess, probably plays chess like most Russians, but he's most renowned for being very skilled at judo, and judo is done through bouts and various tournaments. And, you know, you can win on points, you can win on skill, and you can often win on leveraging the strength of your opponent against you. But you always, you know, kind of trying to readjust your grip and size things up. And, you know, Putin's constantly doing this. You know, we always say don't count him out. And again, don't ever underestimate the ruthlessness and the viciousness and the high tolerance for risk and for casualties. That is also a hallmark of Putin. But also, I don't think you should misunderestimate Ukrainians and people power and the networks of people like all of us out there who are talking about things and thinking about things that we can do. We're in a horizontal networked world, which often has a lot of weakness. But at times like this, it's also a strength. And Putin doesn't know anything about how that all operates. On that note, can you help us understand understand the Russian people and public opinion a little bit. Do we have any sense how widespread dissent is? And if there are mass protests eventually larger than we're seeing already in the street, can the Russian people topple Putin or is he too insulated? I think he's insulated. And part of the problem is that there's a massive iron dome of propaganda around in Russia. Television is the main medium for information for most Russian people. And the polling correlates with what people are seeing on television, which is support for the war and you know support for Putin in terms of the country being under siege. There's some interesting polling that gets beyond that. You know, there's a lot more pushback among younger people who don't get 
but like in the United States, the news from the television. It's very hard to protest in Russia right now. It's extraordinarily dangerous. So there's a lot of repression. When you have Alexei Navalny already in a penal colony and all of his opposition movement being rolled up and people being arrested, that is meant to discourage others from protesting. You know, you've got old ladies who survived World War II being arrested, young children, teenagers being arrested, you know, women carrying babies. This is all meant to show to people the high risk of protest. And also news, independent news is all now being wrapped up. It's not just that the BBC and CNN have all been pulling out, but Russian independent television, independent radio, there's been a clampdown on the internet, a lot of censorship, I mean, there's still abilities for people to communicate. But I think, you know, it's very telling that even, you know, so many Russians have relatives in Ukraine, that when they try to basically inform their friends and family, that there's incredulity about what is actually happening. So we're going to have to be very creative about trying to sort of figure out how we get the message across. The Ukrainians are doing an amazing job in the world of public opinion out on social media, not in places like China, it has to be said, because there's an awful lot of um, the Russian propaganda being played out in China. But elsewhere in the world, there's, you know, I think a lot more of a growing awareness of just what's going on inside of Ukraine. But it's very difficult to permeate the bubble or the iron dome of propaganda inside of Russia. And the only way that Putin shifts is whether the people in the inner circle who really can talk to him manage to shift him or, you know, people who are getting to talk to him from the outside world, people that he would actually listen to. But again, they would have to shift things by basically pushing him in a different direction, a recalculation of where he is, only from his point of view, if he gets something. So Western nations are sanctioning a lot of oligarchs in the hopes that they're close to Putin and they will pressure him to change course. But do these oligarchs still have that kind of sway with him? And who is close enough to him to either influence him or I know you've said it's not the thing to focus on, but stage a coup? This is the one thing that Putin is utterly paranoid about as a coup, because these have happened many times in Russia's history. It's one of the reasons why he changed the constitution so he could stay in longer beyond 2024, because he didn't want to look like a lame duck and he didn't want anybody sort of plotting his demise. You know, we know that he built this fabulous palace for himself on the Black Sea, what might have been, you know, his retirement pad, complete with vineyards and pole dancing at a casino and all kinds of things that Alexei Navalny, like, you know, blew the, uh, you know, the lid off. And it's kind of quite the spectacle of, you know, the, this palace. But you can't imagine Putin just retreating from that, not wanting to be in the thick of things. And he certainly wouldn't want to be exiled there or be at any kind of physical risk. Because it's not just him, it's all of his extended family and all the hangers-on around him. And when Putin was chosen and selected by Boris Yeltsin, probably one of the most momentous and ill-fated choices in history of your successor. He was chosen specifically because he came from the security forces and was intended to protect and preserve President Yeltsin and his family and all of the, his entourage from any kind of prosecution or you know assassination or anything else. And so Putin wants to have exactly that same set of circumstances around him. And you can be sure he's looking at any moment for any kind of signs of a coup. And that might get back again to meeting with people in great big long rooms, making sure that people can't get anywhere close to him and constantly vetting the people around him. I think the, you know, is a way though of getting to him, if you think about family members and others who were exposed and living abroad, who had, you know, kind of larger aspirations, and who may see their own, you know, well-being at home greatly impinged on by all of the sanctions and all of the restrictions that are being imposed. His daughters run companies, they've got spouses, his ex-wife, we believe, was living, you know, overseas, abroad. You know, there's all these kind of people who do have connections to Putin, family members, nephews 
nephews, you know, cousins, you know, not cousins rather, rather than, um, you know, nephews and others, you know, who are important to him that may be affected by this. We've seen, you know, for example, tweets or Instagram notices from the children of um, some of the people in his inner circle saying no war, you know, clearly their own lives being appended, many of them study abroad. That's the kind of thing that you when we're trying to kind of affect so in the hope that that will get a message back that this can't continue. But I just tell you, it's difficult. We've got to keep at it and be, you know, well aware that it's not going to be a straightforward and we're in this for the long haul here. Last question. If you were sitting with the NATO leaders and advising them, how would you advise them to defeat Putin? It has to be a real all international effort. It can't just be NATO because NATO is his nemesis. For Putin, this is, you know, as much as anything about NATO, trying to stop Ukraine from getting into NATO. For him, this is the battle that he always thought that he would have, which is against NATO. So it has to be internationalized. It has to be within the UN framework. It has to be made clear that other countries that are not part of NATO are basically repulsed by this and want to see it stop. You know, Japan, South Korea, for example, Australia, you know, we, we've got to, you know, prevail upon India and, and China as well, you know, to basically say this is unacceptable. So although NATO has to, you know, basically maintain a very strong defensive posture, it has to figure this out, you know, about how to deal with this in a European security context. If we want this to end and we want to find a way out of this, that's to be a broader based international response. Of course, NATO is very important to this and we have to defend our NATO members and figure out how to deal with this over the longer term, but we have to take a much broader based approach. Fiona Hill, your knowledge is spectacular. Thank you so much for sharing some of it with us today. Well, thanks, Jessica. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And you can follow me at Jessica Yellen on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at News Not Noise on YouTube and TikTok. You can subscribe to the News Not Noise letter at newsnotnoise.bulletin.com. And you can support this work on patreon.com slash newsnotnoise so I can keep giving you information, not a panic attack. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.